Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. And today, true fangirl moment for me and for you if you are a true crime fan yourself. And if you listen to the True Crime South Africa podcast, then the name Nicole Engelbrecht is not going to be an unfamiliar one to you because I have with me in the studio Nicole Engelbrecht herself. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for the, the lovely intro. Appreciate it. <laughs> it is really amazing to have you here in Joburg. Welcome. <laughs> and Nicole is here to launch her debut book, which is Samurai Sword Murder, The Mornay Haramsa Story. And excuse my pronunciation of Haramsa. Nicole, just, I mean, there's just so much, so, so much. And, and I mean, as you'll see, well, Nicole can see my, my little sticky tabs <laughs> and sticky notes in my book and my, my couple of pages here of notes. So much to unpack about the book itself and about the podcast. So, but I'm going to do firstly the book. We'll get to the podcast later because there is just, as I said, just so much, so much. <laughs> and the podcast as I said, if you, the listener, are a true crime fan and you do listen to Nicole's podcast, and I'm just going to slip in here, it is an award-winning podcast, and it is the only podcast that focuses specifically on South African true crime, which, I mean, you'd think that uh, that would keep all podcasters busy for <laughs> forever in a day, um, but this specifically, your podcast is... Focus, you, you focus on the victims. Mm. Uh, so much of our news, we hear about the perpetrator, we hear about the, mm. the person who has carried out the crime. You focus on the victims. Mm. But what I find interesting about this book, mm. your debut book, is that the book is about a perpetrator. Mm. It's yeah. about Mornay, who mm. committed this crime. Firstly, why this this case in particular. Why is this the case that you've chosen for your debut book? So the choice of the topic came at the time Monet had been released in March 2022 on parole. And that started a lot in, you know, the media, you know, and, and it, it made me realize there were a lot of unanswered questions you know, and other cases, there had been links mentioned, and I'd wanted to do an extended podcast, sort of an update podcast, because I had covered the case on um, on an earlier episode when I first started podcasting. So that, at the time, was my idea to do this update podcast with Monet has been released, you know, perhaps chatting to Leonie Pretorius, who is uh, the victim's aunt, and that sort of thing. And as I was doing that and gathering interviews and information for that proposed episode, Melinda Ferguson, who is now my publisher, <laughs> contacted me on Facebook and she had this idea that this story needed to be a book. And um, so those two sort of concepts and ideas came together and that is one of the reasons we chose this case to focus on in, in the book. 
and Melinda, who I did interview a couple of weeks ago about mm. her new book, Bamboozled, as we know, is quite convincing. <laughs> <laughs> she is indeed. She is indeed. <laughs> and that's how the book came about. Yeah. Um, as you said, you, you did a podcast on this. The, the actual case, the, the incident happened back in 2008. Correct, yes. And when you do your podcasts, many of the cases um, are not recent. They they are cases that have happened some time ago, some years ago. And this case in particular, as I said, was in 2008. And Melinda had been told to listen to your podcast. Mm. And she had happened to listen to that episode. And Curious. and, and as you right. say, there are ties to, yeah. to other cases. We're going to mm. get to that. Um, in some time, also um, ties to another book that I had reviewed and spoken to the author of quite recently. Mm. We're going to get to that. Uh, if I mention the word Krugersdorp mm-hmm. and the fact that this case happened in Krugersdorp, yeah. then if you're listening, you might know what we're referring to, but we're going to get to it. Mm. It's, it's all going to come out. It'll <laughs> unravel as as we we continue with the show. But for now, you are listening to People of the Book, and today my guest is Nicole Engelbrecht. Is your shopping list longer and your time shorter? Discam Delivered has you covered. From healthcare essentials to baby food, beauty and toiletries, whatever you need, Discam Delivered has you covered. Download the easy-to-use Discam app and shop over 7,000 products at in-store prices that will be delivered to you within 60 minutes. Now you can relax while Discam delivers your essentials to you. It's that simple. Discam delivered from Discam to you. Discam pharmacies. Pharmacists who care. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm Janice Leibovitz and you're listening to People of the Book. It is my absolute pleasure that today is my guest is Nicole Engelbrecht, she of True Crime South Africa. And we are talking about her debut book, Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story. And Nicole has been in Joburg. She is launching her book. It's very exciting. Mm. And there is no doubt that this is going to be the first of many. <laughs> and as I said, your podcast is, is, it, it favors victims. You, you mm. like to focus on the victims. Um, one in particular that, that, uh, listened to, I mean, I've listened to many of, of your episodes mm. and one in particular that, that really, well, I, I love the podcast, but the, the episode about Jade Ings that you mm. wouldn't refer to her with her married name. Yeah. Because her murderer was, in yeah. fact, found out to be her husband. So you would not refer to her with her married name. And that just shows the care that you feel towards these victims. And that is incredible. But last night, this, this is actually a pre-recording because Nicole is only in Joburg briefly. Mm-hmm. So I managed to hop her into the studio to do a pre-record, which I really am grateful for because, I mean, your time is so limited. Oh uh, Yeah, it's, it's quite whirlwind, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I absolutely had to make time for you. Dennis. So I really do appreciate <laughs> it. But last night at your, at your first launch, um, Jana mm. Marks, mentioned your meticulous research mm. and your research and your background checks they are absolutely it's it's 
enviable. It is formidable, your research, your, your ability to research. And in this book in particular, you have, if I just, I'm just going to refer to this in the back of the book. You have your acknowledgements and then you have your end notes and you have here 60 references to articles, interviews, and there's research notes here, and there are 60 mm. research notes and end notes, and that is a lot of research material. Mm. And you have referred to, to notes from um, everyone from uh, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny to just about everybody possible, mm-hmm. uh, News 24 articles, everything that referred to this case yeah. from our, our News 24, um, Dr. Fisser, who was the specialist uh, psychologist who, yes. who observed Mornay initially when mm. he was arrested, first for 30 days, then an additional 30 days. Um, the, the, the research here is intense. Yeah. It yeah. is intense. But what is more incredible is the limited time it took you <laughs> to produce this book. I mean, yeah. as you, you said earlier, mm. that it, it only came out, you started to do this in March, and, and now we're sitting here in, in the middle of October, and this yeah. book is, is out. It is done. It is produced. It's on the shelves. Mm. That is an incredibly short space of time to get a book done. It was, um, and being my first as well, it was quite, it was, it was quite intimidating when Melinda said to me, listen, we need to get this out this year, which was understandable. Uh, you know, the, the public interest is there for this right now because Mornay has just been released and we knew it needed to be a this year book. Um, so it was intimidating. Luckily, because I'd done the podcast on it and my links to some of the other cases, I already had a lot of that research down, or at least I knew where to find the information. And I had connections to the type, the people that I wanted to interview. So Dr. Gerald Labaskachny, uh, Jana Marks, uh, Captain Ben Boyson, you know, all those types of people. Right. So that certainly helped. But yeah, it was... Definitely an interesting first experience at writing a book. But as you said, when Melinda's on the case, then Absolutely. it gets done. And so when you have Melinda on your side, then yeah, and she was so supportive. She's well. incredible. She was. Yeah, she, she went really totally is. above and beyond. Um, you know, she she didn't just do what most publishers would do on this book. She was. She is as much in this book as I am. Uh, you know, For so sure. it's, it's really a Nicole and Melinda book. Yeah, she's not. Only a publisher, she's the publicist as well. She, she really gets it all out there. And she gave me so much guidance as well. It was, it was really incredible. Yeah, she does that for her authors. Mm. Amazing. So, you wanted to write a book ever since you were six years old. I did, yes. Uh, (laughs) but did you ever envisage that it was going to be on a topic like this? Was it going to always be a true crime book? I think that, uh, you know, I, I've, I've always been a hobby writer and never really, you know, dreamed that it could come true, but never perhaps really believed that it could come true, you know, because the publishing space is so niche, um, you know, everywhere in the world. It's really Not. difficult to get a book published. But in terms of content, uh, you know, I'd always loved actually crime fiction. I write, I write a, a lot of crime fiction just as a, as a hobby. And then... 
I'd never really seen myself as a non-fiction writer sort of until I started the podcast. And I think that really three years ago is when the idea started forming that maybe this is actually a, a niche, a genre that I can write in. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so we've spoken about the fact that the podcast is, it, it favors the victims. You yeah. you want to to bring exposure to the fact that in the news, we speak so much about the perpetrators, the people who carry out Great. horrendous crimes. Mm-hmm. And you want to, to speak about the victims and you talk about them, their families, and you bring a, a lot of comfort and closure to the families of victims. But as I said, this book, strangely enough, is about a perpetrator. Correct. His family, though, declined to participate mm. in the creation of this book. Mm. I think you did mention, though, um, his aunt, Leonie mm. Pretorius, who was the family liaison. So that's Jacques. Sorry, that, yeah, that's Jacques. Oh, that, um, that's, that's Jacques. The okay, aunt, that's yes. the victim's that's aunt. Right, yes. So, But you did work closely with the victim's um, family. They were the first people yes. I had contact with Leonie and already from 2019, and um, they were the first people I contacted. So they are very much involved in the creation of this book. 100%. And, but what I found interesting about Mornay's family is after this incident, after what happened, they remained in Krugersdorp. Mm. Correct. And his brother, who was 15 at the time mm. of, of, of this, this whole incident, he remained at the school. Mm. Let's talk a bit about the actual day of of this event. Mm. Let's talk about what actually happened. Sure. Walk me through this. So what we know is that uh, Monet and his brother left their home. The difference on that morning from other mornings was that Mornay and, and his younger brother walked to school rather than their mother taking them to school, which was the norm. He, We now know that he did that because he had the means by which he was going to commit his attack packed in a bag with him. And he, I, I would suppose, did not want his mother to ask questions. So he and his brother walked to school. Um, and that was... When he arrived, he then approached a group, his group of friends, and we know that on the Friday before that, there was a conversation among the group of friends, and certainly not just on that preceding Friday, for quite some time before that. We, at le- we know for at least that entire school term, he had been discussing this plan that he had with his, with this group of friends. He approached that group of friends and these boys then produced, uh, or at least one of the boys produced an item that he, in his mind at the time, he believed, I mean, he, everyone, every one of those boys believed it was a, it was a prank. No one, not one of those boys except for Monet believed that anyone was going to get hurt this, that morning. Um, you know, and that's, so they, they produced, one of the boys produced what he claimed was an explosive device, which he knew very well himself was not an explosive it, device. Yeah, it didn't contain yes, any explosive yeah, um, element and, to it. Yeah. You know, that was his, he was just playing along with what he thought was a prank, you know, and, um, yeah, then the, the discussion 
continued and slowly these boys seemed to start realizing that Monet was actually serious about this. And by that time, his brother, his younger brother had gone off to his own class, obviously in a different standard. So he got all grade, <laughs> showing my age there, um, had gone off to it. Back in 2008. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And then they gathered in a, um, a bathroom, a, a cloak room, I suppose, on the, on the premises just before the bell went. And these guys started to realize that this is actually in Monet's mind, very, very real. And I think that's when the other boys started to sort of wonder how they're going to get him not to do this. And unfortunately, they were unable to do so. Because what he had said to them the previous week or in previous conversations was um, they were in their final year of school and the discussions had revolved around how they would make their mark and be remembered. Mm. They weren't sportsmen. I mean, let's be honest, there's only a very small percentage mm. of of kids in high school who make it onto the first rugby team, the first hockey team, who right. are the, the in crowd. Mm. Monet and his friends were not it. Mm. And there's been a lot of discussion around the fact that Monet was – not of average height. He was a very small, um, below average height. And if you look at pictures of him, he really did not look like an 18 year old no, not at all. At all. 100%, yeah. Um, so his friends didn't see any warning signs. But they, as, they, as you say, they, mm. they thought this was, you know, all just half and he was just talking, you know, big. Yeah. Uh, one of his friends, did try and he thought that if he went along with it, he would be able, he realized, as you say, mm. they realized that at some point they realized he was serious. Only one of them though mm. thought if I go along with him, I will be able to stop him. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, right. uh, this is where, uh, they, they come in with this association with heavy metal music and mm. the band Slipknot. He had made his own masks. Slipknot were associated with Correct. masks that they wore. Yeah. He had brought masks and his friend thought, well, if he puts on a mask like Monet puts on a mask, mm. he will be able to go along with him, take off the mask, get him to take off the mask. That is not what happened. Unfortunately. We are going to find out shortly what did actually happen. I'm chatting today to Nicole Engelbrecht, and we're talking about her book, Samurai Sword Murder. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book. I am talking to Nicole Engelbrecht about her book. It's called Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story. So, we are talking through the events of the attack of that morning back in 2008. So, Mornay's friends thought that he was joking when he said he wanted to make his mark, do something big, be remembered at his high school before they, mm. they leave and go out into the big world. What happened next? So, as you mentioned, one of the boys decided to play along. I, I suspect that there may have been a little bit of fear from that boy at that, at that point. I mean, his friend 
even though he was his friend, was at that point armed with a, a sword and he was holding a mask out to him and saying, put this on. So there was that element right. and then there was the element, um, you know, of let me try and see if I go along with this, keep him calm, let me see if I can talk him out of it. We both take our masks off and we walk away. That is sadly not what happened. Uh, the boys moved out into the corridor. Most of the children were heading then. The bell had gone. They were heading to uh, assembly, and which we, we know was also part of the plan to have a, all of the school in one place at one time, which is so common in mass murders. And Monet seemingly... So there was a, a photograph taken, which is quite a poignant moment in this crime because it sort of captures, as I say in the book, you know, this moment, freeze, frozen moment where Jacques Pretorius is alive. And very shortly after that, the cell phone goes down. Mornay turns around, sees a group of children approaching, one of which includes, sadly, the deceased, now deceased victim Jacques. And he just lashes out with his sword, strikes the first person he sees, which happens to be Jacques, and then continues on as Jacques falls to the ground, continues on, uh, you know, striking people with, with his sword. But I think that one of the disturbing elements of that is what he says before he lashes mm. out with that sword when he says, do you want to see something cool? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was... Quite disturbing. I think there were quite a few disturbing things that were said that day by him and, and in the, in the, the aftermath. And that was most certainly one of the things that has to make us wonder what his thoughts were about what he was about to do. Because certainly a person that is about to be murdered is, is not for anyone. No one would describe that, should describe that as something cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So he lashes out, he strikes Jacques Pretorius and continues to lash out. Mm. And he then also hits uh, Stefan Boa. Correct. And at that point, two of the staff members, they mm. were ground staff members, mm. come rushing to the scene. They realize something is terribly wrong. They come rushing to the scene. Um, Lesiba Manamela and Tsiamo Kodesang also came rushing to the scene and he lashes out at them as well. They were both injured mm. in, in the, in the attack. And at which point Mornay's brother arrives and realizes that he knew that something was going to happen and he was right all along. Monet has now gone into what seemed to be some kind of trance mm -hmm. and he sits down, puts the sword down. His brother takes the sword away mm. and that's the end of that. Mm. That's when another disturbing thing comes in, when he's told that only one person has died yeah. and he says he thought he got three. Yeah. It's like a game where he thinks he scored. Mm, absolutely. Um, 
And I think that that phrase would be very important in us understanding his true motives. Mm. Um, because this is not, this murder, this crime is not classified as a mass murder because one, the, you know, the definition of mass murder is it needs to be at more than one person. And, you know, Jacques Pretorius was, a, was the only deceased victim. But that phrase tells us that his motive was mass murder. Um, you know, which is very, very important to understand in terms of really grasping this crime and the the impact of him possibly having been released too early. Right. So he said to his friends he wanted to make a mark, be remembered, but what really did he hope to gain from this? I mean, apart from, I mean, fame, notoriety, mm. what was he, he hoping to gain? He's leaving some sort of dark legacy here. Mm. What, what was his end game? Uh, at a school where he really hadn't achieved ma- much, mm. his marks had deteriorated, and he, there were so many red flags and so many alarm bells, especially in, in, the weeks preceding this and discussions that that the principal and teachers have been having with with those um final year students mm. so i think that there was probably an, a a conscious and then a subconscious thing that he wanted to achieve consciously i think he was likely attempting to find this was his way out he realized that he was coming to a point where he was going to have to leave school. He was going to have to do something with his life. His parents and society had expectations of him. He felt he had no way of fulfilling those expectations. And for him, this was a way out. He would consciously frame that as, I'm trying to make a name for myself. But I think the fame and notoriety were probably in reality quite a small part of it. For him, as we've seen in many other mass murder cases with minor minor attackers, it really becomes a way out for a child, usually a male child, who sees no other way out of their situation. Um, and where many may suicide, some go on to first kill others and then suicide. So I do think that was a big part of what was going on with Mornay. Which leads to the obvious comparison Mm. to Columbine, the Columbine school massacre. And you you mention this a lot. There are chapters dedicated to this. And I have to say that I found some of the descriptions here Absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. And specifically, the description of, the, the descriptions given are from, from the Klebolds, mm. who are the family who, who were more public mm. than, than, I think it's the, the Harris, is it the Harris family? Correct. Harris family. Um, they were rushed from their home mm. and, their pets became a logistical problem. I mean, my mm. heart broke. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, that we don't think of things like that. Mm. Uh, there's there's a quote here in the book 
they soon discovered they were the only people on earth who were mourning their son. Mm. I mean, yeah. they lost their child. Yeah. Not only did they lose their child because he committed suicide after massacring a whole bunch of children at his school, yeah. but they lost the child who they thought he was. Correct. They lost the idea of who he was. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there were no offerings of casseroles to tout them through their grief or inquiries about when the funeral would be held. There was an onslaught of threatening phone calls and letters, mm. and they couldn't even stay with family. They had to move into a hotel, a hotel with their pets. Yeah. Um, and then this, I mean, this was horrific. While any other parent would have had no problem walking into a funeral home, home and being attended to, the Klebolds were turned away by all of them. Mm. I mean, do we yeah. even consider something like no. that ever? No. No, it's, and this, I think, you know, going back to my, my usual focus is, is victim focus. Yes. This book is entitled For the Offender. It's the Mornay Haram's story. But what I, what I realized through my writing and research of this book is that what I actually ended up doing was revealing other victims. Yes. Which included Monet's family. Absolutely. You know, um, and, th and that really became so real to me. Unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to speak with Lisa Haramsa, but it became so real to me through Sue Klebold's writings and her publicity. Yeah. You know, the, the, what she's made public about her struggle and the shame she's lived with. And for me, that was actually a revelation. And I really, really hope that it is something that we can start to focus on more in the future because I really think that the offender's family is often so in the dark and it's not their fault you know but they are so targeted mm. absolutely and and the finger is pointed yeah. solely at them yeah I, I think that the final thing that drove it home was that they were advised the Klebolds not to bury their son in a marked grave mm. yeah because the site would either become a shrine for those who thought that his actions were laudable, yeah. or it, it would be constantly destroyed by angry community members. And uh, his he was cremated, apparently. Correct, yes. And he, his ashes are in an unknown, Correct. An unknown spot. Yeah. I, it, it's just, it, I mean, it was a private ceremony. His ashes are interred in an undisclosed location. It mm. is something that... We don't think about, we don't consider it. No. But as you say, you start to question who are the victims. Yeah. The victims are not only the victims of a murderer and a killer and Absolutely. a rapist. And it's everybody yeah. involved mm. with a perpetrator. Mm. It's whoever has been touched by that crime exactly. in whatever way. Yeah. All those ripples that move off that yes. violent incident through time and through generations. And it, it's just, it's, yeah, it, mm. it's something that, that, as you say, once you start mm -hmm. to investigate and once you start to do the research, yeah. you, you realize that it touches so many people in so many different ways. Mm. Um, Mornay, although they said that he perhaps had a low IQ. His marks deteriorated. They didn't think he was 
perhaps so bright, mm. he managed to fake psychosis. Mm. Yeah. Is that not an indication of a higher IQ, though, to be able to do that? I mean, he faked that psychosis for the first 30 days mm. of his observation, so mm. much so mm. that Fissa had to request an additional 30 days after Correct. Mornay's mother mm. then came in and said she suspected for a long time that her son had a criminal mind. Mm. Yeah, it's... So... Munay was certainly, what they found when they assessed his IQ was, although he scored quite low on what we would consider academic IQ, um, he was quite good in actually carrying out tasks. And that sort of made them figure out that his, his inability to come across you know, and, and perhaps do well in school and all those sorts of things may have been more of a choice than a problem with his any cognitive abilities. And the fact that he was actually, you know, he was, he was looking into, we know he, he had quite an extensive knowledge of psychiatry and different psychiatric conditions, and he'd been looking into these things before he committed the crime. He told Dr. Fisser because he felt that there was something wrong with him. But certainly that knowledge that he'd gained, I'm sure, would have helped to, you know, develop this this sort of idea around him having psychosis. Although, thank goodness, he was with a highly qualified and highly experienced forensic psychologist like Dr. Fisser, who had seen, um, you know, many, many truly psychotic patients before. And he was able to say, you know, something is not quite right here. So, yeah, that that was quite interesting. And I think it comes down to um, Monet's, as Fissa said, is, is quite a manipulative person, or at least was when he saw him. So before even committing the crime, mm. he was trying to learn how he was going to get around being diagnosed. He was going, he was trying to figure out how he was going to manipulate doctors, mm. judges, lawyers. He was actually already looking at that end game. He was already looking past the actual crime, mm. the attack, and looking past to see how he was going to manipulate everyone afterwards. It certainly seems that way. Um, you know, we, we will never know 100% for sure, but if you put the pieces together... It certainly seems that way because, you know, even in when he was being interviewed by Frank Officer, he became quite irate that they weren't accepting his version of being a psychotic, um, you know, a person suffering with psychosis at the time of the crime. And he seemed quite surprised that they were, you know, not accepting that he was not criminally responsible. You know, so it, if I look at it, it, it certainly does seem that that interest in psychiatry and all of that really did play into his end game, which was I'm going to commit this crime, but perhaps I'm not going to serve the time that other people would. Wow. Mm. And um, the, the interesting thing was about the handwriting analysis that mm. indicated that uh, the person who who wrote was isolated, lonely, angry, and neglected. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that handwriting analysis was was really interesting when I discovered it. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, and I think that neglect, you know, there's two sides to the story. There's what we've, we've spoken about just now, which was the manipulation. But there was also many times when I wrote this, when I was writing this book and researching the book, that I actually felt quite sad for Mona. And I do believe that it is possible to have empathy for the child that he was and not simultaneously condone his actions. Yeah. You know, and there were many times that I felt quite sad about his sense of loneliness, you know, perhaps what he was dealing with at home, which all played into the the eventual crime. Because there were there were clearly issues in the home that yes. did come out afterwards. Yes. Um and there were clearly issues that, that came with, with his there were the, the issues of not being, not looking the same mm. as other 18-year-old boys. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that probably had a lot, had a lot to do with the community that he was yes. in, which is very traditional, very, um, you know, values, physical strength in males, sport, you know, sport orientated. Yes. Absolutely. All of those types of things, which is, Something all young men deal with, I think. And it's certainly not, you know, something that we hope will continue forever on. I think it is something that should be addressed because it can become toxic. But that certainly was something he was dealing with. And he, he said that he felt like he did not belong anywhere. Not at, not at home, not at school. He had, he had never experienced a sense of belonging in his life. And yet he had his group of friends. Exactly. And, yeah. And no one had picked up on that. No one had seemed to pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing about human psychology is how our internal world is so much more important than our external world because we can be in a room full of people and still feel completely, completely isolated alone. and completely alone. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you've spoken a lot about issues with the South African parole system, mm. um, with, and, and last night mm. at your launch, you also, we were lucky enough to, mm. to have someone there who spoke to us about Perfect. the psychological support and support from psychologists mm. that is given to parolees and people who are about to go into the parole system mm. and about obviously shortages of, of, people who are able to support this yeah. and that the support is given to those who are willing to be supported mm. and that support is obviously not going to be given to those who do not want to be supported. Yeah. Yeah. But there are obviously a lot of weaknesses in our South African parole system, which you have spoken about extensively mm. and which do not seem to be going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a, a topic that's been on my mind from many of the cases that I've covered in, in the podcast. And then especially with looking, you know, looking at that Mornay's story, it is a, an issue that South Africans definitely need to be worried about. We need to start putting pressure on the Department of Correctional Services. They have said that they are looking at changing up our parole application system and how parole boards are formed and accountability for parole boards when offenders that they release commit crimes. And we need to, I think, as a, a, society, a society and a country, continue to put pressure on them to do so because 
every day that we wait, people are being released who firstly should not be in society, but secondly, it's not good for them as human beings. You know, they they might be getting their freedom, but they haven't been given a fair chance at being rehabilitated because of, of the parole system being the way it is at the moment. And they don't have the tools 100%. to be able to go out there and cope with the yeah. freedom that they've been given. And they don't necessarily often want that freedom. Mm. They often Sometimes. feel they yeah. often feel more secure. Yeah. In that confined space mm. and with that confined routine mm. that that being confined gives them. Mm. Yeah, sometimes you do see that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think the guys who are really dangerous to let, to to be to release are the guys who do want their freedom because right. the you know often the personality disorders they're living with don't gel with being in a structured environment and they just want to be out of there. So, you know, that's the risk. But for now, Mornay is out on parole. Mm. He has returned to Krugersdorp. Correct. And is living at home with his mother. That's correct, yes. So my understanding is his mom and dad. So his mom and dad are, are oh, together. they that's are my together. understanding, yes. Oh, okay. And um, that would have been the place where DCS had as his address okay. for him to live. For my listener who doesn't know what DCS is. Sorry, D- Department of Correctional <laughs> Services. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so it's concerning that he's been paroled and most of those involved with this case have expressed concern at his parole. Mm, absolutely. So a lot of the people that I spoke with for the book or who I approached to, to, with the intention of interviewing for the book did indicate that they were quite fearful. They didn't know what the situation was going to be when Mornay came back into the community. So there was certainly a sense of, uh, quite an intense sense of fear early on. And I think that that was only amplified when we saw experts such as Dr. Gerard Labaskakni coming forward and saying that there were many more risk factors present in Mornay when he had uh, looked at him or uh, did a threat assessment on a risk assessment on him in 2019 with his first parole hearing than existed in Mornay. <clears throat> Pardon me. Then existed in Mornay in, uh, you know, when he committed the crime in 2008. So that only, you know, when oh. these things came, became public, that it only added to that sense of fear and him coming into, to a community that, let's face it, still has very deep scars from the crime he committed. And other crimes that have occurred in Krugersdorp that the community still feels very deeply and that they know the town is associated with. Mm. This is People of the Book, and today I am chatting to Nicole Engelbrecht. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm Janice Liebowitz, and you're listening to People of the Book. Today, I am talking to Nicole Engelbrecht, 
podcaster for True Crime South mm-hmm. Africa. But today we've been talking about her book, Samurai Sword Murder, The Mornay Haramsa Story. It seems that everybody is going to be keeping a very close eye on Mornay now that he has been paroled. And they're going to be watching very closely to see how this unfolds and to see if there is any further development. Mm. Hopefully there won't be. Hopefully he will be, as you say, he's staying at home. He's, you know, keeping um, quite under the radar. So hopefully there will be nothing further that develops from this. But let's move on. Let's talk podcast. Hmm. So you started this podcast uh, in June 2019, and we are now up to episode 94. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm not even going to ask you what your following is because you're on so many podcast platforms. Yeah. Is there a way, I mean, is, is there a way that you can monitor that? Not really in terms of followers yeah. on each specific, yes, um, on I each separate so. one. Yes, you can, but um, you know, I guess the measurements is usually download based. Yeah, and collectively that would be quite difficult to. Well, so downloads you can get an a, a total analytic from all the platforms that your that your host um, sends your your podcast to. Um, so that number is available. And quite high, I would imagine. Yes, yeah, so we're nearing <laughs> up to amazingly, mind-blowing me, uh, mind-blowingly about three million downloads. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well done. It is. Thank that you. That is incredible. And as we said earlier in the show, this is specifically South African true crime. Because when you started, you mm. were looking around, I mean, you, you obviously originally had an interest in true crime mm. and you looked around for something to listen to and there was absolutely nothing that focused on South African crime true. which I mean was surprising mm. considering our crime yeah. rate which mm. is notoriously high yeah absolutely uh, yeah it, I mean it was one of the reasons I decided to to look into it you know and now we do have um, you know, Dr. Gerald Labuskakni has his podcast, Profiler, uh, Profiler Africa, which he, he focuses on the cases he's worked yes, he, on. He in focuses his specifically on his own cases. Um, and then I have started mentoring a, a, a group of, of individuals who want to be true crime, um, creators in South Africa. Oh, and wow. some of them have started their own podcasts. So we've got a really nice group of people starting with content creation in the area. And I'm really excited about that. And then you have your other podcast, I Live Through This, mm, yes, which yeah. you are slowly starting to build, mm, which yes. again, I mean, as I've, I've said right through this show now, you, you focus on the victims mm, and, yeah. and those who have survived crimes, unfortunately those who haven't, you mm. focus on them, their families, and you focus on bringing comfort and strength to to those who have unfortunately endured mm. horrific crimes. And on listening to your podcast, and on I mean, I haven't managed to work through all of them, mm. and I do jump around, I, I don't listen in order, <laughs> but nothing is taboo with you. Mm. You work through every single type of crime. Yeah. And, I mean, how how does this, I mean, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> to be blunt. Yeah, it's it's a question I get asked quite often whether it has, you know, an emotional impact on me and up until this point I haven't seen a negative 
emotional impact or in my day-to-day life in terms of not being able to, um, you know, continue on, do my, do the work that I do. It hasn't had a negative impact on me. I think that I am naturally quite emotionally resilient and, you know, I, I keep myself focused on the fact that the podcast is doing good. You know, it's doing, it's making real, a real world difference. And I think it's that focus that even though I'm, I'm thinking about and looking at and talking about some really horrendous stuff, it's that that keeps me balanced and helps me to keep all those, those things in a, in a box, so to speak. But allow me to say, I think that part of it would also be another thing I've mentioned before, your research mm. and the fact that there is no fake news here. Mm. Your research is meticulous. You work with the experts. Thank you that. work with those who work on the cases. Mm. You don't work on hearsay. Mm. You don't work on, oh, my cousin's neighbor's sister's aunt <laughs> said this or heard that. Yeah. You are working with those who have the facts mm. and yes. you work purely with facts. Mm. Absolutely. That's, that's very important to me. And, um, you know, it's something that is not it's not always possible to speak directly to people who've been directly involved with the cases, but there's certainly often a record of, of what has been said that I can rely on to be, you know, the, the, the judgments in cases and that sort of thing that I can rely on to be factual. Um, I definitely don't want to be contributing to putting um, incorrect information out in the world, especially when it's something that is so important and it's 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 stories about the worst times in people's lives and I think it's vitally important to get the information correct. And also because your intention is so often to bring comfort yeah. to to victims and families and vi- of victims and loved ones of victims mm. And I think that the way you end your podcasts with mentioning victims' names and with your tagline for them to rest gently is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's touching, it's moving, Mm. and it's, it's, it's peaceful. Mm. It brings peace. Thank you. And I think it just shows an element of care that many others possibly don't have. Most mm. others don't have. Okay. I think that with many others, the intention would be to shock, mm. and that is very far from what you do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's never, I don't see any value in being salacious and gratuitously describing, um, you know, injuries to simply for shock value. Absolutely. Uh, you know, for me, that's, I do describe, I'll give warnings and I will describe, you know, injuries simply because I think that it's important to understand really what the victim endured. Yes. Um, you know, but I do really like ending off the podcasts with a little bit about who the person was and, you know, who the victim was and then let the last thing in the listener's mind be the victim. Sure. Mm. And I think you achieve that. Thank you. Perfectly, beautifully every time. Thank you. It's just been announced that uh, Charlotte Hope, uh, who um, 
many know from Game of Thrones or the Spanish Princess, is going to be playing Mickey Pistorius in a new true crime series called Catch Me a Killer. Interesting. Which okay. is coming next year from Mnet and Night Train Media. Uh, if you don't know, Mickey Pistorius was South Africa's first serial killer forensic profiler. And the series is adapted from her memoir. Hmm. Interesting. That sounds yeah. great. I'm excited about that. Yes. Uh, I know there is already much comment on the fact that it's not a South African actor mm. playing the lead. Interesting. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, very exciting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's really encouraging to see how South African, the South African true crime landscape is taking off. And I'd really like to see us as creators, whether it's in podcast, whether it's in film or in, in print, understanding and seeing where perhaps other countries have gone wrong in their content creation of the true crime in the true crime genre and trying not to make those same mistakes. Yes. You know, so being more victim focused, let's not be as salacious. And from what I've seen, so far with some of the series I've, I've worked on, um, you know, Devil's Dorp and the recent Reva documentary, I am very positive about the, the South African true crime landscape. Yes, and let's hope that we continue to get it right. I hope so. I hope so, yeah. Let's It'll take an effort from all of us. Yeah. Let's hope. So we're looking forward to this. Cool. Nicole, it has been an absolute privilege Thank you so chatting much. to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really do appreciate it. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I really have loved being here, and it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you. And we have been chatting about Nicole Engelbrecht's debut book, first of many, no pressure at all, <laughs> Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story. It's available right now in all good bookstores. Online as well? Yep, ebook and audiobook coming soon as well. Okay, there you have it, Nicole. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to you listening, take care of yourself, take care of each other, do what you love, and read a book.